Today's May 12th, 2021. Everybody panics and tries to get gas. Tensions are escalated in the Middle East as rockets are launched. And problems are noted in Biden's clean energy goals. I'm your host, Austin Taylor, and this is Split the Difference Podcast. Here we take a look at both sides of the political aisle as we try to bridge the gap between today's biggest issues. Remember, times may be divisive and we may not always agree, but together we can stay level-headed, be reasonable, and always split the difference. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends, Split the Difference family. We have another fantabulous episode for you here today on this Wednesday morning, bright and early, helping you to fill out the middle of this week in the best way that we know how. We have been working tirelessly, as always, to try and bring you the best podcast that we have done thus far, looking at both sides of the aisle from the left and from the right, the good, the bad, and everything. Everything in between, y'all, you know that we are working hard, trying to split the difference between it all, find that sweet, sweet truth that oftentimes lies right there in the middle. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, if you live in the southeastern part of the United States, you probably have freaked out a little bit about gas over the past few days, rushed up to a gas station, and tried to fill your tank up as quickly as you possibly could. Many of you may have arrived at a gas station only to be warned and told by a small crappy sheet of paper right on the front of the gas pump that they are out of gas and that the only thing that they have left is premium gas that you have to pay like $3.50 sense for and that is not fun at all but you go ahead and get it because you don't want to run out of gas nobody wants to run out of gas everyone is going out doing everything they can to find it gas stations all across columbia the midlands area here in south carolina have been out of gas for the past couple of days there seems to be a gigantic short supply and this is because a pipeline was attacked by malware so let's go ahead and hop in real quick. Listen in. This is reported by Bloomberg's markets and finance team. Let's hop in and take a listen to this now. Gas stations along the U.S. East Coast are beginning to run out of fuel as North America's biggest petroleum pipeline races to recover from the cyber attack that has kept it shut since late Friday. Colonial Pipeline says it's manually operating a segment of the pipeline and now expects to substantially restore all service by the weekend. Well, joining us now is our cybersecurity expert, Jamie Tarabay. Jamie, President Biden says that Russia is not really responsible, but, but some of the software, some of the servers are in Russia. What's the nuance? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I guess in terms of Russia's possible role in the cyber attack, we haven't heard anything directly from the Kremlin and the Russians. Uh, In the past, they have denied involvement in cyber attacks, even though the U.S. intelligence agencies have concluded that Russians have been behind many attacks, including most recently the solar wind attack. What we know is that President Biden said there was evidence the hackers or the software they used are in Russia. And we know that private security companies who've worked with government agencies to, in this particular instance with Colonial to stop data that was stolen during the hack. All right. So Colonial Pipeline 
if you don't know anything about it, is a pretty gigantic pipeline that runs all the way up the East Coast, almost all the way up the East Coast within the United States. It supplies about 45% of the gasoline that makes it to the Eastern Seaboard of the United States. So a lot. It was a victim of a cyber attack. There are a lot of reports out, a lot of speculation that it was promulgated by Russia. What we do know is that there were Russian servers, and it appears to be Russian hackers that actually sent the malware over uh, that ended up kind of screwing up and messing up the entirety of the systems that ran the Colonial Pipeline, downloading and taking in about 100 gigs worth of their data and pretty much shutting a whole bunch of systems down. Uh, Colonial Pipeline then went in, realized what was going on, and they're like, turn the switch off. We can't let anything else get out. Basically started to, you know, shut all their systems down to make sure that the malware didn't steal any more of the data that they had. Um, this happened last Friday. Uh, the systems were down for a little while, and then it seems as if everything pretty much opened back up once they realized what the problem was. They were able to diagnose it, and then they were able to, I think, remove the malware from their systems. Uh, how it got into their systems, nobody is totally sure of that right now. Uh, more than likely, I mean, you never know. Somebody could have gone through and just opened up some random phishing email, right? <laughs> An email that they did not need to open, and they clicked a link that they did not need to click, and the next thing they know, uh, some Russian malware is being downloaded onto their local laptop that is going to then dive its way, dig its way all the way into all of the intricacies of their server, uh, which of course is going to cause a gigantic disruption throughout the entirety of the company. As many of you know, uh, computers are, uh, run absolutely everything that we do, right? And everything is connected on these different servers. Most of these servers are centralized in one way or another. So if a malware does get into the server system and it's able to kind of run rampant through all the different files, download a bunch of things, send them elsewhere, it can cause a disruption that is then going to, you know, break down a wide variety of different things within a company. Uh, so uh, the effects are, of course, being felt all over the Southeast. It shows how incredibly fragile our supply chain is. Um, gas stations, if many, if you don't know, don't keep this gigantic supply of gasoline on deck at all hand, at all times, right? Like they order gasoline in, they're more than likely going to get a delivery from a tanker or gasoline truck that is going to deliver the gasoline to their facilities. Most of the time, I guess around like once a week, maybe once every two weeks, depending on how busy that gas station is. They, of course, are going to have big tanks underneath the ground that, have, you know, they come in and everybody's seen the big pump that comes out and they pump all this gasoline into the ground. Well, if you have everybody at once making a run on gas stations, they're going to run out of gas really fast, right? Like they're not built to be able to hold just millions and millions and millions of gallons of gasoline, right? Because you have to have a place to store all of that gasoline. So they're getting these new shipments every week and all of a sudden they had this gigantic increase in the amount of people that are coming up and getting gas, right? All of a sudden everybody and their grandmothers taking up their, their trucks, taking up their cars, making sure filling up the tank all the way to the top if they can because you know, as many of you know, you can't do anything without gas. Like if you don't have gas in your car transporting you from point A to point B, your entire life halts, okay? All of the supply was pretty much completely dried up for a short amount of time, okay? Uh, I was driving around in Columbia, actually, uh, around the Columbia area, and there were gas stations with lines of cars wrapped 
all the way around the block. Okay. And it pretty much was like this thing hit Twitter that this was going to happen. And the next thing you know, everybody's like, we have to go get gas right now. And I mean, there's, there's a good reason for that. So if you think about every single company, right? Not just you having to drive into the office, right? I think the COVID-19 showed that the vast majority of people can work from home, okay? It's not necessarily being able to drive into work. It's all of the different businesses that rely on gas for transporting things across towns, transporting things, uh, materials to job sites that they need to do, whether it's construction, whether it's uh, restaurants, being able to receive the food in. Everything in America is transported for the most part by something that runs on gasoline or diesel, right? That's just the infrastructure of America. That's how almost everything is transported. And all it takes is for one malware getting into one company, one pipeline, and it completely shuts down 45% of the gas supply going to the eastern seaboard. And it's situations like this that make us and should make us realize just how fragile these supply lines actually are. This thing could very likely be from Russia, and the ser- because the servers and the different things are in Russia. What if China or Russia actually went through and launched some sort of gigantic cyber attack on the United States, hit major gas networks or electrical grids, cut off supply lines for a variety of different things? They don't even have to leave their own country in order to do that. China and Russia have proven that they can, in the United States as well, obviously can do this, but foreign countries can sit on their couch and attack a country half the world away, okay? And I think that this gets into kind of the crux of what a lot of, I think, more progressives, right, and Biden, and I think a good portion of his infrastructure bill, although this is not all of his infrastructure bill, but and a good portion of, of Biden's infrastructure package, he wants to update and he wants to get a lot of these different supply chains running in a way so that we would be able to defend ourselves properly and be able to properly mitigate the risks of if something like this were to happen. War is completely different now than it was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, for sure. Okay. If we ever were to get into a place where we were going, where we were being attacked by Russia or China in some type of open and flagrant way, right? They would be able to do it from their computers. And the vast majority of our infrastructure within the United States, especially around incredibly crucial things like a pipeline, okay, where everybody has to have their gas in order to be able to do their job, are very, very open and prone to risk from cyber attacks. They just are. And all it takes is one malware, one malware, and 45% of the gas going to the East Coast is gone. That's unbelievable. So as one, that's you know one of the portions or the pieces that I think that uh, is incredibly important within Biden's infrastructure plan that needs to be implemented. The technology from within our infrastructure needs to be in a place where uh, risk is taken into account and things can be properly mitigated in order to be able to stop any type of foreign attack or malware or computer or cybersecurity attack that we would need to be able to fight off uh, if we needed to be able to do it. Um, there's no doubt, I think there's a lot of people right now are looking around and they're like, um, that happened really fast. 
And that is really, really scary, right? Because next thing you know, you know, you're going into the gas station one day, you're totally fine. The next day there's a run on it and you have no way of being able to transport yourself around. All right. And gasoline and cars are pretty much the only way that you have to be able to do that. We don't have the tram, we don't have trams and trains and infrastructure that doesn't rely on gas. We pretty much have cars, buses, trucks. That's pretty much what we have in the U.S. So uh, I think it, it, a lot of people's eyes were opened up to this. I know my, it definitely made, had my gears turning a little bit about how incredibly simple it would be to, for you know foreign countries to attack us in this way and shut down a gigantic piece of our infrastructure. So hopefully this spurs on Congress to be like, you know what, maybe we can't wait around on this anymore. Maybe we should actually update our infrastructure uh, to the 20, to the 21st century. So we'll see though, you never know. So with all that, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day. So there's been fighting in the Middle East for as long as humans have lived within the Middle East, okay? Fighting and bombing and rockets and casualties. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon. And many Middle Eastern countries, especially Israel and the countries surrounding it, uh, for a lot of very, very awful attacks to happen, there's a lot of religious and racial strife in the area that has been compounded over years and years and years. It's not going away anytime soon. Uh, it has always been there. It likely will always be there. Uh, but this most recent bout of fighting, I think, has the entirety of the world kind of like turning their heads a little bit more and being like, this is not good. This needs to stop, you know, ASAP as possible, in the words of Michael Scott. So, uh, a Palestinian terrorist organization by the name of Hamas initiated fighting and attacks uh, by launching rockets from the Gaza Strip, from Gaza into Israel uh, within the past couple of days. Yes, I say, and also emphatically so, Hamas is a terrorist organization, okay? That is an official United States stance, government stance. Uh, there are, unfortunately, though, a lot of people that do not view uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, the PLO, or Hamas as terrorist organizations, and they are, um, and we'll get into a lot of this here in a bit, but they're very uh, prone to defend a lot of the actions that are taken by Hamas, which is absolutely awful, trying to justify a lot of the terrorist acts that they do, uh, simply because they do not like Israel as a state. Um, but... With all that, Hamas shot rockets into Israel a couple days ago, which prompted Israel, of course, to defend itself and launch, launch rockets of their own. So let's go ahead and hop in real quick. This is Fox News reporting on this uh, just a day or so ago, a little more information around it. Jillian, good afternoon. This was a red line for Israel firing on Jerusalem earlier this evening. Seven rockets targeted the city and dozens of rockets have targeted communities along the Gaza border here where we are standing. The past 30 minutes have been quiet, but the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, are preparing, they say, for days of fighting along the Gaza border. We spoke earlier with sources inside Gaza who have confirmed that the Israelis are now responding with airstrikes inside the Gaza Strip. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, nine Gazans have been killed, including three children in this Israeli retaliation. How did we get here? That's the big question. Well, this week has been extremely tense. There were protests across Jerusalem that turned to riots. Early this morning, more than 300 Palestinians were injured at the Al-Aqsa Mosque as Israeli security forces stormed in. All of this related to two major issues having to do with access to Al-Aqsa and also the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem. 
Okay. So uh, as with what normally happens in these situations, Palestinian terrorist organizations attack Israeli civilians totally indiscriminately uh, and then point the finger when they are attacked back. Okay. So uh, one thing that is incredibly important to to see and to realize here, and I'm not going to say that Israel never does anything wrong and that Israel is, is always the good guy in every single situation. I'm not going to say that. I personally am very pro-Israel and for a wide variety of different reasons, but uh, I, I do think that oftentimes... Uh, a lot of the attacks on Israel or a lot of the, the fighting that goes on there is, is very much instigated by terrorist organizations in the area uh, that are backed by uh, Muslim ter terrorist groups like Hamas or PLO. So uh, one of the interesting things is that Hamas purposefully places their strongholds in areas uh, uh, that are open civilian populations, okay? So for example, the headquarters of Hamas is underneath a hospital, Okay, they know and they recognize that Israel more than likely is not going to bomb a hospital, right? Even if the Hamas headquarters are there, because Israel doesn't want to indiscriminately kill civilians. They have, and maybe this isn't true, right? But Israel openly talks about and openly within a lot of their fighting, say that they want to reduce civilian casualties as much as they possibly can. However, it is incredibly difficult for Israel to do that because Hamas purposefully places themselves within populations where civilians are, so that if you want to kill somebody that's in Hamas, you have to bomb a building that probably has a lot of just regular civilians in it, totally innocent people. Um, and when, when Israel does that, and inevitably, when they end up killing a civilian or two because it is war, because there are bombings, because they are trying to kill people that are within terrorist organizations that are attacking their country, they point Hamas immediately points a figure at, finger at Israel and tries to stir up a lot of dissension and tries to just stir the world up to look at Israel as this horrible rogue state that goes out and just kills people indiscriminately, okay? It is awful when civilians get killed in war. That is unfortunately one of the worst parts about war. Um, I do think that Israel tries not to. However, Israel absolutely has killed a ton of Palestinian, Palestinian civilians. There's no denying that at all. So currently, Hamas has a stronghold in Gaza, okay? This was uh, given to uh, the Palestinian the Palestinian people during negotiations in 2006. Uh, they have held the land since then. The treaty negotiations were, by and large, supposed to concede land to Palestinians in an effort to reduce conflict in the area. So Gaza uh, it borders right up against Israel, the southern part of Israel, and it has been a, a, a part of very, very immense debate and deep deba debate for decades and decades as to who should be owning that land, who should have that land. At one point, it was Israel's. Um, and then it was, you know, Palestinians before that. So it's kind of been back and forth for a long time, but Israel decided to give that land to the Palestinian people. Okay. Uh, because, however, there are a very large amount of Palestinian terrorist organizations, uh, just because they concede the land does not necessarily mean that there's going to be an end to fighting. If there's anything that has been shown over the last 60 years, every single time that Israel ends up rolling back and conceding something and giving something up in order to be able to quell tensions as much as possible, they are almost always hit back very, very hard for that. Because, and you have to be incredibly clear about this, Hamas's end goal is to destroy Israeli as a state. 
No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Their goal is to wipe out every single Jew that is living in Israel. They do not believe that Israel is a state. They do not recognize it as a country. They want to kill as many Jewish people as they possibly can. Okay? At the end of the day, many Palestinian people just want Israel gone. Okay? So Israel can give up a portion of their land, but... That still doesn't mean that they're going to stop bombing them, okay? This, of course, is also not being helped at all by Biden administration foreign policy within the Middle East, which is looking to negotiate and work with actively Iran and purposefully distance the United States from the Saudis, okay? This is an incredibly tumultuous relationship. The United States relationship with a lot of different countries in the Middle East has been incredibly up and down. Some of that is due to the fact that the United States has done absolutely terrible things in the in the Middle East. Some of that also has to do with the fact that there are strongholds within the Middle East for Islamic terrorist organizations that want to see the destruction of Israel and their closest ally, the United States. So this has been going on for a very long time. But one of the biggest problems right now is with the various terrorist organizations across the Middle East uh, that are being backed and funded by governments of countries within the Middle East. And a great example of that is Iran. Iran has a an expressed ideal to be able to purchase the equipment necessary and build up a nuclear weapons program, okay? The Trump administration, uh, the Obama administration initially created an Iran deal, a pact that basically would, they would agree to not create or have any type of nuclear weapons. Uh, Trump came in, pulled the United States out of that nuclear deal for a wide variety of different reasons, which I'm not going to dive all the way into because we just don't have time today. And unfortunately... Um, I think that the Biden administration is now getting in and trying to renegotiate with Iran, uh, and Iran is pushing very hard to be able to keep the the new uh, systems that they've put in place to create nuclear weapons over the past couple of years, and Biden is more than likely going to allow them to do it, okay? Progressive policy in a lot of ways over these past couple of decades, but especially within the past 10 or 15 years, has taken a real turn against Israel and a real turn turn towards uh, supporting and being okay with a lot of the extremism that is going on in a lot of these Middle Eastern countries. Uh, there, unfortunately, is a lot of anti-Semitism within the Democratic Party. I don't even think that that's a super controversial statement because I feel like it's incredibly obvious with a lot of the incredibly loud voices within the Democratic Party that say extremely anti-Semitic things. Um, I think that you can also say on the Republican side of the aisle, there's a lot of racism there as well, uh, especially a lot of white supremacy on the right side of the aisle. Both of them are not without their terrible ideologies on either side, especially within the extremes. But uh, the Democratic Party, in a lot of way, mainstreams people. Great example is Ilhan Omar, uh, that have incredibly anti-Semitic views, have said extremely anti-Semitic things, and they are not... You know, they're not pushed down. They're not quieted for it. They're not they're not censured for it at all. Uh, it's pretty much just kind of allowed within the Democratic Party. And you can kind of see this in policy and how things play out. The Democratic Party as a whole pushes against the idea of wanting to support Israel at all costs, uh, pushes against the idea that Palestinian uh, organizations within uh, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries there, uh, but it's, you know, especially within Palestine are, um, you know, actively... Uh, terrorizing Israel on uh, a weekly and a monthly basis. Uh, many Democrats want to push very, very hard against all of those notions and those ideas. Um, 
And that's not necessarily a good thing, especially not for peace within the Middle East. Uh, there were not a lot of things that I think the Trump administration did extremely well. But in my opinion, the foreign policy within the Middle East is one of them. I, I do think that uh, Trump's policies, especially regarding Israel, moving and recognizing the capital of Israel as being Jerusalem, uh, another uh, one great example. Um, I, I, I think that his policies, foreign policy within the Middle East, uh, was pretty sound. Uh, I think pairing up with the Saudis, who, don't get me wrong, the Saudis are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. However, the Saudis want to fight extremism, Islamic extremism within uh, the Middle East, just as much as the United States does, because it causes a ton of strife, it causes a ton of conflict, and it's all right in their backyard. And for Biden to come in and pull us away from the Saudis, release a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, the reporter Khashoggi that was killed by the Saudi government, you know, he's purposefully trying to do things in order to be able to disrupt the relationship between the U.S. and um, and the Saudis. And I think that that's something that the Trump administration worked to build. And I think that that was a beneficial thing uh, for the United States in the Middle East. So uh, right now, tension things are going downhill fast and tensions are flaring really, really high. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing at all. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and our last story, story number three. So for our third story of the day, clean energy. And when I say clean, I'm putting a little parentheses, maybe, or, or you know, like a little, some, some quotes around that, some little air quotes there if you can't see me. So Biden has announced his push towards quote, clean energy, okay? That would be an unprecedented shift in how the United States consumes energy currently. It wants to go green, okay? All electric, solar and wind as much as possible, all renewable energy because, and this is a, I think a, a really kind of a pillar of the Democratic Party right now is, a, you know, the climate change and wanting to be able to get the United States uh, in a in a in a direction that is going to be pushing away from fossil fuels as much as possible, right? Which on its face sounds great, right? Um, however, the International Energy Agency, the IEA released a new report talking about what it would take in order to transition to a uh, completely clean energy basis like the one that Biden wants um, in the next you know, 20 years or so. And it would require a gigantic amount of energy transition materials, okay? Or minerals, I'm sorry. Energy transition minerals, ETMs. And the minerals basically required to be used in the new technology that would need to be created in order to gather in the energy that we would need to live and survive on. So, the, e, the IEA finds that with a global energy transition like the one that President Biden envisions, demand for key minerals such as lithium, graphite, nickel, and rare earth metals would absolutely explode, rising by 42,200%, 2,500%, 1,900%, and 700% respectively by 2040. This is according to the Wall Street Journal. In other words, switching from gas and other types of fossil fuels like coal or natural gas or whatever it might be, uh, and then mine every useful min mineral from the earth in order to have a, quote, cleaner energy, okay? Currently, the world does not have the capacity to meet that type of demand. As the IEA observes, albeit cautious bureaucraties, there are no plans to fund and build the necessary mines and refineries. So, the IEA basically comes out and is like, listen, 
Nobody has plans to build these mines. I don't know how we're going to be able to get these minerals. If we did get these minerals, it would absolutely destroy the environment, the economy, the social challenge, uh, social, there'd be a gigantic amount of social challenges along with geopolitical risks involved and in actually digging into the earth to pull these minerals out in order to put them in some type of solar, solar powered solar panels or any type of wind turbines or being able to even create like electric vehicles, for example. Um, and there's arguments, I guess, for the pros and cons for both of it, right? One obvious pro of switching towards this more kind of clean, uh, clean or green energy, right, is that that most of the left has been talking about for years is that the carbon-based energy releases an incredible amount of CO2 into the atmosphere, and not just CO2, but greenhouse gases as a whole. Uh, CO2 is is the biggest one that is primarily focused on because it's the one that's released the most, and it's the one that I think arguably has the most devastating effect on the environment. So all of these greenhouse gases in turn heat up the earth because the atmosphere retains more heat from the sun. And the idea or the argument is that the more clean energy like solar or like wind uh, would significantly reduce the amount of greenhouse gases that are put into the atmosphere every single day. And because energy dependence would be on things that don't produce CO2, right? So the con like I was saying earlier, is that this would absolutely destroy the planet in a wide gambit of other ways, okay? Digging up and destroying the earth to extract these minerals that would be needed in these technologies in order to have a clean energy solution will undoubtedly have absolutely devastating effects on the environment, which is not just localized to the mine, but the, all of the surrounding areas as well, okay? It will kill whole ecosystems, likely cause animals to go extinct, along with disturbing indigenous populations, displace a whole lot of people. It, it would not be good. Not only that, there likely is not enough of these minerals within the earth to currently meet the energy demands that would be required for this to happen over the entirety of the earth, okay? There likely is enough minerals for just the United States to be able to meet energy outputs in the way that it would need to if you were able to create enough wind turbines and solar panels in order to actually be able to create a functional energy grid in the United States, which I don't believe is actually possible. Um, there would, there was there are literally not enough of these minerals in order to be able to do that the world over. Okay. So you have to be able to find energy solutions that are not going to absolutely destroy the world. Right. And you can't stop all of these, all the energy that is being used because it of course would destroy the world economy. So what do you do? And this is why I'm a huge proponent of nuclear energy. And I'm not sure why the left is really against nuclear energy. I haven't seen a lot of good arguments from the left side of the aisle outside of and the nuclear, you know, nuclear plants have bad, have waste, right? That is incredibly toxic. It's difficult and it remains radioactive for, you know, a long, long period of time which I get and I understand. However, there are already new technologies coming out to be able to help with that. Um, but I think nuclear energy is the answer here. And it's been really unfortunate to me to see that in Biden's new energy proposals and this infrastructure plan that is trying to push towards green energy and get the United States off of fossil fuels, that nuclear energy is absolutely nowhere in any of that. Right? Like, if you want to reduce carbon getting into the atmosphere, nuclear energy. If you need something that produces a, an incredible amount of energy, nuclear energy. Right? If you put more research and development into this type of technology, there's no doubt that new efficiencies will be created, new ways to store the raw, raw materials will be created, new ways to store the waste will be created. 
But there's a there's a big push against it in the United States for some reason, which is really mind-blowing to me. So very interesting read on the Wall Street Journal. Um, you totally should go and check it out uh, if you don't get if you have the chance, uh, because it, it really is interesting to kind of piece through and think through like just because an energy solution like solar or wind is called clean, right, doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't going to have trade-offs that would be incredibly harmful to the environment. The the harm to the environment just won't be in your backyard. It'll likely be in Africa or some far off place where they're digging up these miles wide mines that are going deep into the earth and pulling out these incredible amount of minerals that would be needed to actually have these functioning pieces of technology. So Interesting stuff for sure. You should totally go do some research and check that out. Very interesting read. As always, y'all, we're going to go ahead and end up the show with something that made me smile. So something that made me smile is going to be our latest guest episode that should be coming out to you very soon. I've loved doing the guest episodes. They're honestly one of my favorite parts about this podcast because we get to hear from people that have different opinions and perspectives than ones that we would actually have. Uh, and we get to learn a lot of new things together. So I think you guys will absolutely love it. Look for that to be dropping here very, very soon. I know that you guys will absolutely love it. So as always, y'all, thanks for stopping by, for checking us out. Please, as always, remember to keep a level head. Always remember to be reasonable and, of course, to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor. Thank you for listening to Split the Difference podcast, written, recorded, and hosted by Austin Taylor. If you're interested in getting in touch with me on Instagram, you can find me at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and on my website at splitthedifference.com. Production for the intro and outro music done by Rosewood Records Recording Studio. If you're interested in booking or learning more about them, you can reach them on Facebook or Instagram at Rosewood Records SC or on their website, www.rosewoodrecordssc.com.